Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. All right. So, again, my name is Alex. It's good to be with all of you, um, and I hope I get to know some of the new faces here tonight from Icon and uh, Redemption Family. I want you to make sure you introduce yourself to Josh, and um, yeah, let's really do this thing together. We're also going to be mindful of time. We'll be out by nine, just so you know, for those who are like wondering how are we going to do on time, we will make sure we're out the door by nine for kids and all the rest. All right, so uh, this is pretty cool. <laughs> all right. Um, This is a wonderful display of the goodness of God to get to be together and have our churches partnering together like this for this evening and tomorrow night to come alongside one another, to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to get to know one another, to share stories, build relationships as we seek to grow as healthy followers of Jesus here in Seattle. And this city, in case you haven't noticed, is not very easy <laughs> for any number of reasons. And yet it's where God has planted us, sovereignly. And so one strategic element in bringing our churches together for this event has to do with the fact that over the last several years, both of our churches were planted or born in the wake of tremendous loss and turmoil, grief, deconstruction. Is anybody kind of tired of that word yet. I don't know. I don't know if people use it anymore. It might be over. I don't know. I don't, I, you know. Uh, so last year during Redemption's first round of replanting our church, uh, we used the language of hospital and hospitality. And so for the first several years, like Icon, I'm sure, our church functioned as a hospital for wounded saints. People just showed up beat up and exhausted. And in God's mercy, he's preserved us. He's rebuilding our church. He's rebuilding faith. And so in our replant, we started talking about moving from not just being a hospital for wounded people, but moving toward hospitality, which means for us, that looks like serving uh, the marginalized our unhoused neighbors, Title I schools, refugees, uh, the elderly, people that get pushed to the margins, moving outside. And like, what does that have to do with our marriage conference? Everything. Um, that it's not just enough for the church to care for herself inside the four walls, nor those pushed to the margins, but the church, in order to be the church, needs to express love and unity toward other churches in our city. You with me? Like, also, if you want to talk, please, God, if anybody says amen tonight, I will take you out for dinner or beer or whatever. Just please talk. Ah, okay. And redemption people, remember that on Sunday, too. Seriously, holy cow. I'm just telling you. So... But we desperately, desperately, what our city desperately needs to see, unbelievers throughout our city need to see non-competitive Christians. What our church 
and churches throughout our city need to see is no gossip, no slander, no putting down, no competition whatsoever, just doing what Jesus told us to do, which is very simple. Father, I pray that they would be one even as we are one. What a beautiful demonstration to the city, to the capital C church, and to, to one another to practice what we're doing today and tomorrow and maybe in the weeks and months and years to come too. Um, gosh, a few months ago I texted Pastor Josh and just pitched this idea like, hey, <laughs> you guys meet in an Adventist building. We meet in an Adventist building, so the weekends are all kinds of crazy, you know. <laughs> How about a Friday and Saturday night? <laughs> And he came back like enthusiastic, like, yeah, man, let's go. Let's do it, of course. And so uh, thanks, man, for being so hospitable and kind and uh, flexible with time. And it's just really, really special to get to do this. Uh, also, a tremendous thank you to the ICON team for putting together some of our socials and things like that to just get the word out to do what we're doing. Uh, I think we also have friends from Doxa Church on the east side that are here like serving, uh, looking after our, our kids downstairs so that our churches could do this. I mean, that's really like unbelievably cool. And so um, just a tremendous thank you. So tonight we'll do dessert after this cookies, I think, and then uh, tomorrow night we'll have dinner together. And so just take time to like connect with one another and don't just clump up as church buddies, but like meet new people if you can. All right. So tonight the title of my sermon is The Fear of the Lord is the Strength of Your Home. And as I jump into this, uh, I want to say that Jana and I, we have been married for 18 years. You can wave if you like. There you go. Yeah. 18 uh, we have two children. Our daughter, Tove, is almost 13. Our son, Jude, is 11. <laughs> and I'm 42 years old, and I could not be more smack dab in the middle of my life. And I met Jana. I say I met Jana because it went that way. Uh, I met Jana in 1999 at a punk rock hardcore show in Birmingham, Alabama. Me and some of my friends had loaded up in a suburban and drove over from Atlanta to go watch a bunch of bands play, bands that went on to like play on like bigger labels like Tooth and Nail and Solid State. But back in the day, it was, that wasn't much. But there were bands like Spitfire and 238 and Under Oath with Dallas, not what's his face. Anyway, <laughs> but like, you know what I mean? Like, and it was fun. It was a lot of fun, like old, like metal, punk rock, hardcore stuff. And that night in December, I looked across the pit with my friends who were like all straight edge guys, like, you know, killing each other with like gas masks on and just going completely ballistic. I saw Jana standing there, like trying not to get smashed and just watch a band <laughs> in this cute little blue bandana. And I thought, I just felt like I got hit by like a bolt of lightning. I was like, oh man. That's the one, that's the one for sure. And as a kid in like Bible college, I was like, that's the one, you know? <laughs> well, anyway, so I went over and I talked to her and I, I gave her my best hello. Uh, my name is Alex. I just had to meet you. That's all I had. There was no swipe right or left. 
There was no like online anything. That's all I got was like, I've got to like muster up like the strength of like Clint Eastwood, be like, get the swagger of like, you know, Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> and like try to pretend to be as handsome as like Clooney or something, but like just walk over and just embarrass myself. And I introduced myself and she's like, oh, nice, that's nice to meet you. One of the guys in one of the bands, uh, she was dating one of the guys that played guitar in this band called Amberlynn. They were terrible then, they're still terrible. And uh, she was, yeah, he's terrible at guitar. Um, he had good taste in girls, but anyway, um, anyway, so I got her email address. So that's cool. That was real cool. And we would email every once in a while. And uh, I basically had to wait that guy out for like almost a year, not quite a year, but half a year or so. And the following summer, there was this big festival that our friends were putting on. It big was like 600, but that was big for our scene at this furnace in Birmingham, Alabama, where you would go watch metal, of course. And uh, she reached out and said, hey, are you coming to, to Furnace Fest? And I was like, uh, yeah, now for sure, yes, yes, uh-huh, uh-huh. And this, I found this picture online of Jana yesterday. Uh, I was looking for old Furnace Fest photos uh, from 2000. And that's my friend Travis in a throwdown t-shirt. Just ignore him. <laughs> but she... Uh, that was the day we started dating. And it's really cool. And I can say that it's been pretty awesome, to say the least, um, to be married for 18 years. You know, we, we, we got married about three or four years after that picture was taken. But it's been hard, too like impossibly hard. Like there's been dark days that have been so bad that it, I didn't think we were gonna make it and neither did she. And I mean seriously, like we're not gonna make it. A Couple of rounds of crazy church abuse, crazy levels of church abuse, betrayal, just a lot of pain brought us right to the very wits, to our wits end, to like rock bottom. And we found that when you hit rock bottom, that's when Jesus tends to hand you a shovel and say, go deeper. Like, oh God, this is already too hard. But we did it. We decided to take time out of ministry for a whole year to go to therapy two days a week to work on our marriage. Once, well, we would go one day a week for us, and then we would go to our own individual stuff and work on all this junk, death and grief and loss and stuff that in the name of getting out there and doing ministry and all this and that, we were guilty of neglecting our own souls. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I signed up and easily like most evangelicals, I signed up to go into all the world, no problem, and decided to bypass the invitation to go into my own life and pay attention to my own story 
And when you neglect your own soul at the expense of serving Jesus and the church, Jesus will have to give you a course correction. He is the head of the church. He will move the church forward. He does not need you to kill yourself for the sake of the church. He already died and rose. So you can then be present to your own self and work on yourself. And so these are some of the lessons that we began to learn. And boy, they were hard, and we could have used those in premarital counseling. Yipes. <laughs> All right. So after I prayed about where I should kind of begin our time, uh, I think I, ca- I just kept coming back to the theme of the wisdom of God. Wisdom in marriage. Why do you need it and where do you find it? Okay. First, why do you need it? Everyone married here knows that the honeymoon phase wears off very quickly. And then life, with all of its blessings and hardships, challenges and opportunities, all begin to set in. And then we begin the sporadic journey of both prosperity and poverty for the rest of our lives. Both will sporadically just show up. And we also find out not long after the honeymoon phase wears off that our spouse actually can't complete us. They're not even designed to do that. And so we have this like longing and this echo from eternity just bouncing around inside of us. And we're trying to, I'm married. I'm trying to follow God, I guess. I got a job. I went to school or whatever. Like I'm doing the things, I think, but I still feel like there's things missing. And so that's where culture just steps in. It says, well, maybe you just need more money or maybe more education or more square footage or maybe you need a new girlfriend or a boyfriend or somebody else on the side, you know? Like, this is where culture will be like, oh, that longing thing, I got something for you. And yet, Scripture's ancient answer is the one that we need now more than ever, more than money or house or whatever, another vacation. It's wisdom. And so over tonight, tomorrow night, we're gonna focus on giving you practical tools to use in your marriage. It will be practical for sure. But the key that unlocks that toolbox to use the tools is is the wisdom of God for a strong and content and even thriving marriage. So the Bible describes wisdom as essentially the the ability to live skillfully. Being smart doesn't mean you will live skillfully. Having resources in the bank does not mean you're going to live skillfully. Having good intentions and even read the best marriage books doesn't mean you're going to live skillfully in your marriage. Those things are great, don't get me wrong, but skillful living in your marriage is something that takes constant time, effort, and energy. A strong marriage is a result of good exercise. Solomon writes in the Proverbs, do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Though it cost all you have, get understanding. Cherish her, she will exalt you. Embrace her, she will honor you. She will give you a garland of grace for your head and present you with a glorious crown. So you see, The things of value in this world are not going to be found on the surface lying around. You actually have to dig and work for them. 
Wisdom is like that. It's something that you pursue, you sweat for, you give to, you sacrifice for it. And for those who don't and choose to take the other route, the price is enormous. The Proverbs refer to those people as the fools. And the price of foolishness is enormous. It could lead to infidelity or divorce or maybe, it might be worse of all, of just a lifetime of putting up with somebody just because it's the right thing to do. So the price of foolishness is so high and thus the call to pursue wisdom is so loud because our world is riddled with distractions. Every step you take, you have to stay mindful that there are potential dangers. It doesn't mean walk around in the fear of the world, in fear of the world, but it does mean to walk around in the fear of the Lord. Satan, he knows this, and therefore he sets his hatred on those who are married and striving to walk in the fear of the Lord. And why is that? Why does Satan oppose your marriage? Here's why. Because Every single day, whether you know it or not, your marriage is designed to remind him that his kingdom has been dealt a death blow in the resurrection of Jesus. And Satan's time is coming to an end. You see, he doesn't just see you and your spouse as separate. He sees you and your spouse as one and your oneness points to the oneness that Jesus has with the church and to Jesus one day his knee will bow. So your marriage every day, whether you are conscious of it or not, is a signal. It is a more than a threat. It is a promise that there's been a death blow given to the kingdom of darkness at the resurrection. That's why he comes after your marriage because your covenant with your spouse is saying something about Jesus's covenant with his church, which is absolutely unbreakable. Isn't that awesome? All right, so since we're talking about wisdom, here's two places I wanna talk about from, the, from our wisdom literature in our Bible. Your Bible's broken into genres. Law, prophets, wisdom literature, gospels, apocalyptic literature, poetry, whatever, all this stuff. In the wisdom literature, it's trying to communicate one major theme throughout. It's the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1.7 says, the beginning of, the, of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord does not mean to walk around in pure dread of God, but it is the Bible's way of speaking to the fact that we're called to revere God, to honor, to obey God, and to trust God's will and his direction over our own. So two men from the wisdom literature Let's take two of them and just compare their marriages. One is riddled with pain and suffering and hardship and the other one's filled with luxury and prosperity and blessing and comfort. The marriages that we can compare are Job and Solomon. The problem of pain and the problem of prosperity. Okay, so you know the story of Job. Begins in 1 verse 1 saying, there was a man of the land from Uz whose name was Job and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. 
And so Satan goes before God, and God tells Job, and, and says, you know, God, Job only loves you because of how much you blessed him, materially and relationally. If you take all these things away, Job will curse you. And so soon after, you know the story, Job attacks, uh, I'm sorry, Satan attacks Job's life. And after Job loses his children, his livestock, the farm, we read that Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, he fell on the ground, and he worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. The Lord has given, and the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. But Satan comes back a second time. He's not finished. Satan comes back, and God obliges Satan's request this time to afflict him with a terrible skin disease, his health. So after losing his children, his farm, his provision, all the way down to his health, while sitting in an ash heap, scraping his wounds with broken pottery, Job's wife shows up. It's the only time you see her in the book. And she says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. And so the way she shows up so abruptly, it serves to heighten the fact that all the pain has come upon them and it was now tearing them apart. In particular, she was enraged over his refusal to abandon his faith in God. And this caused her to abandon her faith in him. She was shocked over the fact that he was holding to his integrity, to his devotion and commitment to worship God. She hated the fact that he was willing to worship in the rain. She hated that. So this Old Testament scholar, John Hartley, he comments here, instead of seeing this quality, his integrity, as her husband's greatest asset, she feared that in, I'm sorry, she feared that inspired a fanaticism in him that refused to face the reality of circumstances. She's enraged. You're not paying attention to life. Look around, man. We've lost it all. This is ridiculous. Look what we're going through. And so, church, listen. Job knew something that every one of us need in the context of hardship in marriage, that the presence of God is the place to process your pain and pour out your complaint and your lament and your brokenness and your disorientation in the context of worship. Like, that is your worship. Worship is not, I just feel amazing. In the presence of God, that is the place to process pain. That's the place. And it doesn't have to feel good. You can say things like, God, I'm so angry with my spouse. I can't see straight. God, I'm so heartbroken. I feel so disoriented. I feel so ugh, exhausted right here. That counts as worship too. <laughs> oh, 
Hartley continues, he says, his wife's appeal was more trying to Job than the losses themselves. For she spoke out of the strong emotional marital bond between them. She put into words the essence of her husband's temptation. It is folly to adhere staunchly to one's integrity in the face of such tragedy. According to her view, to compromise one's faith in God in order to ease an intolerable burden is the wisest course to follow. That's where she was at. So she articulated what, was so, what Job was so obviously feeling down in his bones, that gnawing temptation to curse God and die. She just says, do it, give up. We don't have anything to live for anymore, Job. We've lost it all. We lost our home. We've lost our money. We've lost our kids. We've lost the farm. You've lost your health. We have nothing anymore. In fact, I'm so sick and tired of hearing you pray to God and keep bowing down before him in the midst of all this garbage. I'm tired of it. Curse God and die. We've lost everything, and now I've lost you. Have you ever talked that way or felt that way? You see, the wisdom of this world is not ready for moments that shake us to our knees. It's not ready. Where are you going to go, TikTok? <laughs> what are you going to find there? It's just not ready. So Job's response comes back with this amazing answer. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and not evil? In all this, Job didn't sin with his lips. And as the book progresses, you know the story. His three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, those guys, they show up and they start badgering Job and going round for round. Well, what'd you do? Look at how messed up your life is. God's obviously upset with you. You've really, really upset the creator. And they go round for round and you're like, you guys are making it worse. Like they were great friends. As long as they were quiet, they were awesome. The moment they start talking and doing their theology and philosophy and theodicy and all this stuff, you're going like, please stop, please stop. I've got like boils on my skin and my house is blown over by a tornado. Can you just, can you not? Yeesh, okay. So, and as you know, the whole story moves on, and in the end, God appears in a tornado again. And they start talking, and God asks Job, hey, where were you when I put all the stripes on the zebras? when I stretched out the necks of the giraffes, I drew a big circle on the bottom of the ocean, or when I made the mountain shoot out of the earth, and when I put the bird in the tree, where, where, where were you? And Job covers his mouth and begins to say things like, oh gosh, you're right. You're the one that fills the fields with snow. You're the one that makes the flowers grow. You're the one. You're bigger than my circumstance. You're bigger than everything. I, I surrender, essentially. And then God moves in. Job remarries. Has a bunch of children again. God doubles his fortune and all the rest. And that's kind of how the story ends. He returned to the fear of the Lord. 
Now for the opposite side of the problem. Solomon. We love this guy. <laughs> Solomon's an interesting character, and he began strong. This is what his father, King David, spoke over Solomon in 1 Kings 2. Listen to this. This is amazing. The end of David's life. 1 Kings chapter 2, David says to Solomon, Be strong. Show yourself a man. And observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways and keep his decrees and his commands, his laws and requirements as is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you go. And we all know David had his tremendous losses, but he's probably right here at the end of his life going, hey man, what Moses was on about, what God has actually called us to, do it. Trust me, <laughs> I've learned something. But he was pointing his son to the glory of God. And then we see Solomon begins to ask for wisdom. In 1 Kings 3, he asks God to give him wisdom. And, and then he starts on, on this journey really strong. And he begins writing the Proverbs. And then he writes one of the Psalms. And he writes the book, Song of Solomon. And while he started out strong, filled to the brim with the wisdom of God, he eventually lost his way, you know. When Kings 11, it says, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord as God. So you have to go, wait, all right, pastor, here's the thing. I've been wanting to ask a pastor about this forever. What about all these concubines, huh? You ever wonder that? I have like a jillion times. Like, was that all right? Like 700 wives? One's plenty. Two's insane. 700? <laughs> it's like you just want to tell your friend, put down the red solo cup, man. Go home. It's done, man. You've gone too far. That's Solomon. And the question is, is well, is God okay with this? And the answer is no. Solomon's clearly breaking the law of God. He's breaking the commandments of God. He's completely cast off all restraint that God put on him his people, his king. And it's actually really hard to tell who Solomon's first wife was. And so after doing some digging around, I think it's safe to say there's this woman named Abishag, the Shunammite, who he writes about. It seems to be this is the one he's talking about in the Song of Solomon. But we read about Solomon in 1 Kings we see he marries the daughter of Pharaoh and then subsequently many other women from many other nations. And the whole reason is to gain like political power. Solomon knew God's will. He chose to violate it. So 1 Kings 11 says this, since this is your attitude, you've not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I almost certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. And so you know it cost him, his family, the nation. Later on in life, after much prosperity and loss, Solomon wrote this. I gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, men and women and concubines and the delight of the sons of men. He got it all. Completely the opposite of Job. And look at what it produced in him. He says things like everything became meaningless, chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. He found himself in a place of utter despair. The money and the wives drove him to meaninglessness. And so to our absolute shock, he came to the same conclusion that Job did. 
Ecclesiastes ends with, Now all's been heard, and here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the duty of mankind. And so what we have to do is pay attention in our marriages, both to poverty and prosperity, because both can equally serve as threats to our devotion to God and to one another. It might be wise to look at your spouse tonight or sometime over the course of the weekend and say, um, babe, I'm committed to following Jesus and walking in the fear of the Lord. Um, should you think maybe we should talk about like having a plan uh, for when prosperity shows up? Like, what's, what do we do? What do you want to do? Like, when I get that pay raise? Like, what if our ship does come in? <laughs> what are we going to do if another zero gets added to the paycheck? Who do we become? What becomes of our priorities? Where does our worship go? What does life look like all of a sudden? Because all money's going to do is magnify what's in here. Babe, what are we going to do if poverty strikes us? What if our health is suddenly taken? What if someone dies, God forbid? What if I lose my job? What if, what if the moment happens and we find ourselves shaken to our knees like Job? Babe, do we have a plan? Are we us? in a way that can weather this, it'd be worth at least one conversation, you know? Because <laughs> by the time the tornado shows up, it's too late to come up with a plan, you know? Keep falsehood and lies from me. Give me neither poverty or riches. Give me only the bread that I need. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who's the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and dishonor the name of my God. Okay, I'll move quickly. Where do you find the wisdom of God? The wisdom of God is found ultimately in Jesus Christ. Paul called him the wisdom of God. But there's more to beholding Jesus as our wise example. Jesus is more than a an example to us. He is our substitute. It was the wisdom of God that led Jesus to die in our place for our sins. If you go read 1 Corinthians 1, that's what you'll find. And so, it is in looking to Jesus. And Josh and Mark and Ben and Katie, they'll all be speaking to this. Wisdom's not only found in looking to Jesus, but it's found in becoming present to yourself paying close attention to who you were, who you are, and who you are to become. Frederick Buechner says it this way, listen to your life, see it for the fathomless mystery that it is, in the boredom and pain of it, no doubt, no less than in the excitement and gladness, touch, taste, smell your way to the holy and hidden heart of it, because in the last analysis of all moments, our key moments, and all of life itself is grace. Pay attention. Pay attention. The wisdom you need for your marriage is buried in the alphabet of your own story. Lastly, others. Where do you find it? 
through remaining faithfully present to a few close friends who are willing and able to steward your real life, whether with the ship comes in or it looks like the ship is sinking. Your close friends, by the way, don't have to have it all, all the answers. They don't have to be like licensed marriage counselors, though those are great. Go, do it. <laughs> but you need friends that you can lean on. In addition to godly friends in marriage counseling, be present in your church. Get wisdom above everything. When you invest in your marriage, you're investing not only in today, you're investing in your future selves. Your 60-year-old self, your 70-year-old self, your 80-year-old self. When you invest in your marriage now, it's not just to put a Band-Aid on today. You're investing in the future you. And for those that have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, you're also investing in them too. So, all right, in closing, I want to tell you just one last thing. I know I'm, I'm, way, I'm sure I'm way over. Please forgive me. Um, in the wilderness of our marriage in 2015 for Jana and I, we had to do a lot of deep digging, and we came away with three things that were worth building our life on and around, and so we are passing that on to you tonight for whatever it's worth. You don't have to take it, but it's what we found in the desert, and so if you don't have to go to the desert if you do a couple of these things. <laughs> Here's what we took away. First, all of our wealth is in our relationships. We had to redefine wealth. It can't be in your education or your paycheck or your square footage of your home, your attaboys or whatever America keeps trying to high-five you with and tell you this is how you define your wealth relationally. For us, it became between me and Jana, Jesus, our kids, and our friends. And the clearest example in the gospel of relational wealth is, of course, Jesus. As he dies on his cross, he is so relationally wealthy that he's surrounded by religious people, and he's the only one praying. He's so wealthy, he can take the man next to him to paradise. <laughs> he can foot the bill for that guy's sin and hasn't even got his name yet. That's relational wealth, i.e. Jesus, creator, owner of the universe, dying naked in poverty, the most relationally wealthy one. The second thing, above everything, it has to do with Jesus. Jesus is gentle above everything, and that's been so helpful in our marriage. Sure, he's right about everything, but he almost never has to insist on being right, does he? <laughs> he's resurrected from the dead. There's no arguing here. But what we have to lean into is the gentleness of Jesus above everything. Jesus is gentle, kind, and patient. In fact, if you spend time with anybody who knows how to spend time with Jesus and you ask that person, well, what's he like? They will never come back with, well, he's Lord and King in Christ. We already know that. They always talk about him in terms of his kindness and his gentleness, his patience and compassion. He's kind to me. He gave me another chance. The last thing for us became to live and die in gratitude, to start shaping our marriage around gratitude. 
We don't have it all. But we do have a lot. And there is a whole lot to just name that we can be grateful for. And we've noticed that when we practice gratitude, our joy goes up and our contentment comes rushing back. And in a city that thrives on advertising, which is about getting at your wallet through the vice of discontentment, you can sever the head of the snake through simply saying thank you. <laughs> so that's, that's it. I'm sorry I went way over. Love you, churches.